many as, as folks may want, but don't hesitate to go up on the, the berms and look the blueberry bushes and bring a bucket or two. And I'm sure that there's uh, 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 enough for folks to go home and make uh, blueberry muffins or pancakes. Um, blueberries are an unusual fruit. Uh, well, I say unusual. They're different than apples and tomatoes and things like that. If you pick them unripe, they will not ripen. Whatever stage you pick them in is the maximum ripeness that they will be. So um, um, don't uh, harvest the unripe thinking, ah, in a week they'll be good. They won't be. They'll, they'll just be useful for a slingshot and nothing else. Um, we've got some tennis balls that are fairly fresh, but I don't know that our tennis rackets are, are accessible because our house is being torn down. So if you want to play tennis, bring tennis stuff. If you want to um, bring uh, or play baseball, bring your mitts or softball, bring your softballs. I'll have some baseballs and a couple of mitts, but you'll need more. We'll have a few footballs. I don't think we have any Frisbees out, as Becky said, if you want to bring something like that. We've got tables for a good number, but if you want to bring a blanket, that's useful. Um, we've got a lot of dirt if you want to bring a shovel um, <laughs> or a rake. Uh, that would be useful as well. Um, we've got the paddle boats and the canoes out. Um, if you're going to fish, uh, please be careful because you don't want to catch anybody in a paddle boat or a canoe. Um, the lawyer in me throws that out there. Um, that's the party. Okay. Uh, please come. Bring your family, bring your relatives, bring your friends, bring anybody you want to. And uh, um, when class is over, uh, <laughs> this has been a pretty busy week. Uh, I'm sure for a lot of y'all it has been for me. It's been a pretty busy morning. Um, I waited to Xerox my lesson on the way to church this morning, which is a mistake, I confess it. Uh, but I've been in Florida for most of the week and, and leave tomorrow for San Francisco, and I only had this little wedge of time, and so I waited to do it this morning. And I cannot make the stupid copy machines at my office work. This is after I lost my keys and couldn't get in and had to go find other keys. So long story short, I was at Copy Club, and I missed the sermon, and I missed what Robert had to say. And I came running in here as Becky's calling me on the cell phone saying, are you coming to teach? Um, but CopyCore, bless her heart, made copies. If you don't have the lessons, because I didn't get them here till late, hold your hand up. They will be passed out. Um, uh, and I, will, uh, uh, I won't make a promise, but I will tell you I will try not to wait until Sunday morning to copy the lesson again. Um, I usually try and have the people at work do it, but since I was in Florida, I didn't have it done before I left. And so, long story short. No, it wasn't. Long story long. Um, okay. Um, I need to breathe for a moment, so pray with me, because I just ran in here. Lord, uh, uh, thank you so much for this class, and I thank you for the honor of uh, getting to teach it. And I thank you for uh, uh, so many people trusting me with their time and uh, their commitment to learn of you. And I pray that you will give uh, uh, me wisdom, give me words uh, beyond my own, uh, give me uh, an ability to convey the eternal truths and the actual historical truth of what you have done in our lives. I pray this in Jesus Christ. Amen. If I could impress upon you anything at all. Yeah, lessons. He's got lessons. Lessons. And they're free. Take two. Read it twice. Um, um, if I could impress upon you anything at all, it would be what we have to talk about this morning. 
one of the hardest things for me as a human being to do is to live in a way where I think outside of where I live. See, I live in this circle, with this life, with this family, with this job, with this church. I live my own history. And if I could do anything at all to, to really enhance my faith or to enhance your faith, I would try to figure out how to move us beyond our thoughts of our own history and realize that the religion and the things we talk about this morning are not ideas only, but they're actual events that occurred in history. There were people like you and me involved. And the same God that we worship and adore today was the same God then. And He has not changed. And the basic part of people has not changed. There were real people like you and me who had their own set of problems, who had their own issues with work, their own issues with family, their own issues with their own selves like you and I do. And in the midst of all of this, God said, I am going to step down and, and I am going to intervene inside these people's lives, not only for them, but for the people who are going to be at church at Champion Forest Baptist Church on May 18, 2003, in the chapel Sunday school class. And God made that deliberate choice, and He stepped into the lives of people like you and me over 3,500 years ago at Mount Sinai. The book of Leviticus is the book that we're going to look at this morning. It is the third book in the Bible. If you've got your Bible, open it up to the third book, Leviticus. And if you, like me, have an NIV study Bible, you'll have a little introductory information, which, of course, um, was not in the originals. <laughs> this is uh, why they can charge more for the Bible because they added this. See, it's got that kind of introductory stuff. This is not like the best focus job. But if you turn the page, you'll see where the book actually starts. And mine starts... It's on automatic focus. Is that focused for y'all? Or maybe I just need surgery again. Leviticus 1.1, The Lord Called. Now, if you were a Jew and you were reading your Torah, you would probably call this the third book of Moses, or you might call it by its Hebrew name. The Hebrew name for each book is the first word. Um, so, Vayikra in the Hebrew means, and he called. It's what's translated. And that's the first word. So, if you were reading a Hebrew Bible and you were looking at the titles, they just would have used that for a title. It doesn't mean Leviticus. Leviticus is a made-up word in our English language. It comes from the Greek word that means pertaining to the Levites. Because a lot of this book pertains to the Levites. Now, who were the Levites? You remember, we had um, Jacob became Israel. God changed his name to Israel, right? And he had how many sons? Twelve they became the 12 tribes of Israel. Each tribe uh, uh, descended from each son. 
one of those sons' name was Levi. Okay? From Levi came Leviticus, Leviticus, if you want. Levi was the tribe or the son from whom the priests came. As God set forth the Israelites into his promised land, he took one genetic line from Levi and said, you, the Levites, will be the priests. It was not like it might be for you and I today, where a child can say as he's growing up, gee, I believe I'm called into the ministry. I would like to be a minister. You could not, growing up as a Hebrew, say, when I grow up, I want to be a priest. The priest came from the tribe of Levi. You were either born into it or you were not. The high priest himself had to be a Levitical um, uh, descendant, a descendant from Levi. So the name Leviticus comes from the idea that this is a book that has a lot of instructions and a lot of points related to the Levites and the priesthood. Um, we, uh, third book of Moses in the Hebrew, are Vayikra, uh, Leviticus, Levitivus. Um, that's wrong. That should be a C. Comes from the Greek translation, uh, and we call the Greek translation the Septuagint. It was done a few hundred years before Jesus by a group of Jewish scholars in Alexandria, um, Egypt. The Septuagint, it means relating to the Levites, and uh, that's just what I've told you. Um, let's go back. What did I just miss? It looked like there was another bottom line. Uh, a, oh, yeah, this is important. This is what I, a book I also call a common read through the Bible stopper. Let me explain what I mean. Many are the times, starting as a child, when I decided I would read through the entire Bible. And I was going to start at Genesis and I was going to end at Revelation. And I was going to march right through that puppy three, four chapters a day. Take me a year, but I was going to make it. You hit Leviticus, frequently you stop. Um, lots of people who decide, I'm going to read through the Bible all the way, hit Leviticus and say, oh, mercy me. My quiet time needs to be found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is just absolutely of no use to my life whatsoever. Um, um, so just keep that in mind. With that in mind, we're going to look at particularly two parts of, of Leviticus this morning, but I thought it useful, and you've got this. I tell you what, this just looks at an angle to me. Does it to y'all? Okay, that's going to drive me nutty. Um, it's not as bad out here. Maybe it won't drive me as nutty. The... Uh, Okay, we need someone to like lean on this for the lesson. That's okay, it's not as bad down there as long as y'all can make it. Um, I've put the outline of the book or sort of an outline of the book in your outline so we don't need to go through it because it's uh, not a good use of time. It'd be a read through the Bible stopper in here. Um, but uh, um, it, it basically contains that kind of material. And where I'd like to start is a story that's found in the details of the priesthood, chapter 10. This is a story of Nadab and Abihu. Let me tell you why I'd like to start and talk about this story. This is a story that a lot of Christians and a lot of non-Christians who go to church and claim to be Christians use to justify what is called legalism. Okay? 
This story is often used by folks to try and convince you that you better do right by God or you're going to hell. It's not a question of your heart. It's not a question of your attitude. It's a question of, are you doing it right? And if you're not doing it right, doesn't matter how good your heart is, you're going to hell. Consider Nadab and Abihu. Now, legalism is our theological term de jour. Legalism, when we talk about legalism, um, it, legal we know means law. Legalism as a theological term means, you know, Wayne is going to go to heaven or please God based upon what Wayne does. Or Miss Pfeiffer will go to heaven based upon what Miss Pfeiffer does. And, and legalism is the idea that you earn what you get. John will, will please God based upon what John does. And, and it's like there's a scale of justice before the Lord. This is the viewpoint that when you go to heaven, if you're at the pearly gates, Peter says to you, it takes a thousand points to get in. And you say, oh, a thousand points, that's pretty, I can make that, I was a good man. That's a legalistic response. The legalistic response would be to say, Peter, it takes a thousand points, very good. Let me tell you, I taught a thousand Sunday school lessons. There. Need I say more? And Peter could look at me and say, well, I'll give you a point for that. Oh. Oh, I forgot the higher things. Love your neighbor, love your family. I brought my children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I saw that they understood your things. I loved my wife as Christ loved the church. And I'd list two, three thousand good family things I did. Peter's response, man, we haven't had anybody that good in a long time. I'll, I'll give you another point. You can sit there and list and list and list all days, but you're never going to get your thousand points. At which point, hopefully, you would say to Peter, well, how? But by the grace of God, can anybody get in here? And Peter could say, well, that's your thousand points. Because it's the grace of God in Orthodox Christianity that we understand is our salvation. It is not what we do. This story, though, seems to be useful for folks who want to try and teach you that you better do it right or you're going to hell. I have some friends who go to churches where they're taught, if you worship with an instrument, you're going to hell. I know people who go to churches that teach, if you don't get baptized with the right theology in your brain, you're going to hell. I know churches that have split over whether or not a kitchen can be in the building or whether the kitchen and the fellowship hall have to be under a separate roof in a different building or you're going to hell. <laughs> they teach this in places. Okay? And these are the very places. I've had the arguments with some of these people where they say, I say, you know, God looks on the heart and, you know, don't... don't Consider Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 10. And this is the story that's used. It's a short story. Let's read it. Um, it reads as follows. This is two verses. Aaron's sons. Now, Aaron is the brother of Moses. He's a Levite. He's going to be the first high priest. 
Aaron's son, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them. Censers are like the little, if you grew up in the Catholic church, you know what they are. Mike does, but, but you know, that's where you put the, the, the incense. Put fire in them and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died. Boom. And the moral of this story is, you can have the best intentions in the world, but you do something unauthorized for God and bam, you're dead. Okay? This is worth a pause. In biblical literacy, we need to understand this story because it's so misused. And so we're going to take a moment and understand it. Was it in fact their action that caused them to get zapped? Or was there something more, something involving attitude, something involving the heart? Well, the story is not written to give us a theological explanation of what happened. So we have to try and understand it from what the story is there for. The story is written to convey to us, A, a historical event. This is what occurred. And there was no great theological discourse that happened afterwards to explain to Champion Forest Baptist Church in 2003 why it is God did what He did. But it is apparent that God was about um, um, His holiness and His purification here. Now, look at the hints that we do have. I think the key to understanding this is found a little bit further in the sixth verse. The sixth verse, let me back up for a second. In the sixth verse, Moses is saying, okay, now we're going to get back in here and we're going to do it right this time, Aaron. Okay? I think you've just now learned, watching your two sons, two of your four boys get torched, how not to do things. Now let me tell you how to do it right. And you and your remaining boys better not forget this. The next time you come before the Lord, you and your sons, before you serve Him, the Lord, aren't to drink wine or other fermented drink before you go into the tent of meeting. Next time, go, don't, don't go in there drunk and do it. And this verse indicates to us that those two fellows didn't just accidentally offer the wrong fire, unauthorized fire. These were two fellows who uh, uh, had obviously very little regard for what they were doing, were very cavalier in what they were about before the Lord, were most likely drunk while they were doing it, and giddy and not really caring about what's going on. That's attitude, folks. That's not action. This is not a story that says if you don't get it just right, you're going to hell. This is a story about attitude. Further confirmation of this is contained when you look at the, what happened to Eleazar and Ithamar, who were the two remaining sons. After their brothers, Nadab and Abihu, get zapped doing the work, Eleazar and Ithamar have to go in there and finish things up. In the process, Moses says, not only in verse 6, don't you get drunk before you do it, but Moses adds the following. He, he says, Here's exactly how you're to offer the sacrifices, and I want you to eat all of this and leave none of it after you do it. This is the commandment of the Lord. Eleazar and Ithamar go about doing it, but they do it wrong also. And they don't eat as they had been instructed to. And Moses just comes down real hard and says, So are you ready to get zapped also? You just fly in the face of God's commandment? God says to do this, and you just say no? 
And the response that Aaron gives on behalf of his sons was, Moses, they're mourning the loss of their brother. They're very upset. They couldn't eat. They weren't trying to disobey God. They were trying to show honor. And they're doing the best they can. And Moses' response was, oh, okay. See, God, God, God was not zapping the people who were putting their heart into it and just making mistakes. Um, now, that's the story of Nadab and Abihu in context. Don't ever let it get misused. You're now biblically literate on that story. Okay, next story. Page two is uh, someone else would say. Who is that guy? Paul Harvey. Yeah. All right, let's flip channels. <laughs> let's flip channels from Leviticus 10 and find Leviticus 16 on the satellite dish. Leviticus chapter 16 is what today's really about, and we'll spend our last 20 minutes on this, or 25 minutes. The Day of Atonement, okay? Now, this is an exciting part of class, and it molds nicely with the story of Nadab and Abihu, but I want everyone in here, if possible, to get a hold of what I want to talk about here. This is the most important thing that we have talked about in biblical literacy in, in the whole week. We haven't been talking in a week, so that's not that big a deal. No, this is like, this is, this is critical. Okay? This is like reading, writing, and arithmetic. This is basics. This is, this is foundational. This is something we need to understand, and we need to understand it fully. Okay? It's in Leviticus 16. The Day of Atonement was one day a year. This is an, a, an institution, a, 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 not really a celebration, it was, a, it was a, a national holiday that God put out there for his people and said one day of year, and he told them which specific day is going to be a day of atonement. It's a day when animals are going to be sacrificed to atone for the sins of the people. What does atone mean? It means to pay the, the penalty, the price for the sins of the people. To, to uh, um, um, atone is, is to pay the price. Okay? So one day, don't you wish it were all that easy, by the way? Don't you wish when you made a mistake and sinned against Almighty God, all you had to do is kill a pigeon? <laughs> it's not. But in essence, that's where, and these were goats anyway, not pigeons, which, you know, it's a bigger animal. But uh, you've you got to atone for the whole year, so you expect it to be a bigger animal. They did have, well, anyway. Um, one day a year when animals were sacrificed to atone for the sins of the people. The Hebrew for this is Yom Kippur. Yom is the Hebrew word for day. Kippur for atonement. If you look on your calendars, you'll find even today Yom Kippur. If you work with anybody who's Jewish and practices... And, and lots of them start practicing on this day even if they don't practice because it's a holiday for them and they will not work. If uh, in the legal circles, if I have uh, to deal with lawyers who have Jewish heritage or, um, uh, on that day, I'm out of luck because most Jews will not. It is the most holy day for a Jew. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And it's set out in Leviticus chapter 16. Today it's still honored by Jews, but today they don't do the sacrificing. God set out very clearly what you do on the Day of Atonement. 
The Jews will not do that sacrificing today. Most of them say the reason why they do not do the sacrifices is because the temple has been destroyed. And so there is no appropriate place to conduct the sacrifice because the sacrifice needs um, um, the requisite parts for it, the locations for it. Okay? Um, if the temple's ever restored, lots of Jews say the uh, sacrifices will continue. Um, the Day of Atonement. Let me tell you why Christians don't celebrate it. And maybe that's a misstatement because actually we do. Christians do not celebrate by sacrificing animals to atone for their sins once a year. Instead, Christians understand that Jesus Christ was the ultimate sacrifice to atone for sins. And in fact, Christians see, we as Christians see and understand, the Day of Atonement was really just a, a model or a symbol, if you will, or a, 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 a prototype or a foreshadowing or a sample of the real sacrifice that Jesus was going to have. The Day of Atonement that God set up in Leviticus 16 is almost a, a prophecy, if you will, of what Jesus would be and what Jesus would do. And that's what I want us to look at as we walk through this. The Hebrew Day of Atonement foreshadows the atoning death of Christ. The Hebrew day where sin, the price for sins would be paid by animal sacrifices, that is merely um, um, a, a picture image, if you will, of what Jesus would actually do when Jesus atoned for sins. So let's look at the Day of Atonement. It happened once a year, and it happened uh, around the Holy of Holies. Okay? Those of you who were here last week when we talked about how the tabernacle was set up, we need to remember that on Mount Sinai, God told Moses, set up a tabernacle. And when you move, move the tabernacle. Ultimately for the Jews, the tabernacle itself was dissolved because once they took over the promised land and once David, and, and not David, but Solomon took over the kingship, Solomon built an actual temple off of the model of the tabernacle. And the temple wouldn't move because they weren't wandering around everywhere anymore. They were a stable kingdom. Okay? And then Solomon's temple got destroyed, got rebuilt before Christ. And this is the temple that Christ would go into. It was modeled off the tabernacle that God told Moses about on Mount Sinai. And um, once a year, the Holy of Holies, here's the model picture we had last week I put up here. Uh, actually owned at this point by the Southern Baptist Convention. And it's in the deserts. Uh, uh, those uh, right outside Solomon's pillars. This is an actual place where the Jews wandered in the wilderness and would have pitched the tabernacle in this area. The tabernacle, you can see, had a fence around it that was very specific on the measurements. It had the, the holy place uh, in here, and, and then it also had a, a, an altar right here for sacrifices in the view of the people. Um, we can get a closer view of it like this. You would go through the gates, and uh, this is where all the work happened. Inside, let's go inside this building for just a moment, or inside this tent, okay? Inside this tent was um, the table for the showbread and the menorah, and the priest would come in, and this is where they did all of their work every day of the year, except on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. On that one day out of the year, and only on that one day, 
was the high priest, not all the normal priests, the high priest allowed to go on the other side of the curtain here into what was called the holy of holies. See, this area is the holy place, but inside the curtain is the holy of holies, or it was also called the most holy place. And when Solomon builds his temple, when the temple's rebuilt by the time of Christ, they still had an area that was the holy place, and they had a curtain that separated off the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And it was in the most holy place, the holy of holies, that the Ark of the Covenant existed with the two angels, the cherubim, um, uh, on the, the cover, which is also called the mercy seat. And then inside this Ark of the Covenant were kept the Ten Commandments, a jar of manna, and uh, the rod that, that sprouted. Um, so this is what we have. Now, let's go back. Once a year, the Holy of Holies, Aaron goes in to the holiest of place once a year on this Day of Atonement. And before he goes in, he's got to put on special clothes. And he's got to wash himself. He's got to wash himself clean. In fact, before Aaron goes in, he's got to offer a sacrifice of an animal just for his own sins to make sure he's clean before he goes in to get the people clean. And so if we remember that picture, you'll see the priestly garb and uh, 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 the fact that, that they would dress specifically before they went in there, Aaron, in addition to washing clothes, sacrifices for himself to make sure he's clean, goes in to sacrifice for the people. These sacrifices were done out here on this public altar. See, we're still in the tented area. That's the holy place and the holy of holies, most holy. And here was an altar out front where the people could see that the sacrifice was done. And, and uh, uh, he would slay a, a bull uh, for himself and uh, uh, sacrifice for himself. Now, in addition to cleaning himself on this day, Aaron the high priest, or whoever would be the high priest after he died, would also take two goats for the people. Okay? The first goat is one that they're going to slaughter. And when they slaughter it, he takes the blood and he goes into the most holy of holies and he sprinkles the blood repeatedly on the altar, the mercy seat, the, the, where the cherubim, the angels are. That is symbolic. And God told the people, that's where I dwell. That's where I'm living among you. That is my home. That is my presence for, for these purposes, okay? So you go in there and you take the blood of this animal and you sprinkle it on to show that blood has paid the price for the sins of the people. You remember back in the very beginning, Adam and Eve. God said, when you eat of the fruit, you will die. Because death is the sentence of sin. So the sin of the people needs the sentence of death. And that's the blood. It's showing, okay, there's been death to pay for the sins of the people. Some of you, this may seem outlandish. It won't when we're done. Hang on with me. Um, the second goat, what Aaron would do, is in the presence of the people, he would lay hands on the head of the second goat and take, convey on that goat all the sins of the people, of the whole nation of Israel. On the goat, it is like there's a, a, a symbolic transference there of, okay, now goat, you've got all the sins of the people. And then do you know what they would do with that goat? they would drive that goat out. That goat would be taken out by some fella, 
far removed from the camp, far removed from Israel, out into the wilderness or the desert to die. Because the symbol there was when the sins of the people are conferred onto the goat and the goat goes out, then the people's sins have departed with that goat. Um, all of that would take place here in the courtyard. Um, I told you the blood is sprinkled on the ark. That's the ark where they would sprinkle the blood. And um, that's the Day of Atonement. Now, let me try and make sense of this in a, in a context of where we've gone. And then we're going to look at it from a Christian perspective. God made man to be in fellowship with him. We understand that. I was watching an Everybody Loves Raymond episode. Do y'all watch that? Kevin Roberts says that's our family. I don't think it is. But that's almost mom. Uh, <laughs> um, the uh, uh, episode had um, the little girl. What's her name? Allie. Allie supposedly was asking Raymond about where babies come from. And Raymond has a sneezing attack and can't answer and he flees. And his wife and he have a discussion and finally he decides he's going to be a responsible parent. He's going to go back in there but not until he's read seven books on how to tell her. So he's got all seven books and he takes them in and he goes back and he sits and he lays them all out. You know, he's got his tabs in the right places on her bed as he sits there to tell her. And he says, honey, do you remember when you asked me that? Yes. Well, honey, would you like to talk about that? Yes. Okay, well, let, let me talk to you about it. And she said, well, let me re-ask it first. And he said, okay. And she says, why are we here? And he said, well, let me explain to you. When a man and a woman love each other, they get married. And she said, no, no, Dad, I don't want to talk about sex. I want to talk about why we are here. Why did God make us? If we're going to heaven, why didn't he just take us straight to heaven? Why did he put us here first? Raymond says, well, because heaven's overcrowded. And, God, God, and he realizes he's just getting in deeper and deeper. And he starts looking in his books, and they don't have the answer. So he starts a sneeze attack again and says, I'm sorry, I'm sneezing, I've got to go. He runs downstairs. The whole family has a discourse about how to answer these children's question, or this child's question. Um, and it's humorous, uh, uh, but uh, it it's, it's, finds its humor in part because those are questions that are fair to ask. And it's fair for us to ask them. But the Bible does have an answer. And, and Raymond may not, but if he'd come to our biblical literacy class, he would. Because we talk about it. God made us to be in fellowship with him. God did not make man because God needs us. God doesn't need us at all. God did not make man because God was lonely. God's not lonely. God has the angels. God has the Godhead itself. God did not make us because his ego needed a boost from a bunch of people who could walk around and say, holy, 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 worthy are thou. No. God made us because God's character is one who gives. And he gives us life and then he gives us what we need and he loves us and he made us to be in fellowship with him. The problem is all of us are related to these two people named Adam and Eve 
who decided that instead of being in fellowship with God, they would live on their own outside of his boundaries and rules. And we, of course, were born into that sinful heritage they chose. So while God made man to be in fellowship with him, man sinned and fell from the fellowship. Man chose to walk in his own fellowship circle instead of God's. Now, the correct result of this, God has said from before it happened, is death. God has life. If you walk outside of God, you don't have life. You have death. And so to sin is, is properly to die from God. But rather than kill man out, outright, God had a redemption plan where God could buy man back into fellowship with him. And this is a plan, Paul tells us in Ephesians, that God had even before he created the world. It wasn't a plan B. It was the known result of making free will people like God was making. That God would be in a position to have to buy them back because those people would choose sin. So God had a redemption plan, and that's what the Bible's all about. That's what our church is all about. Our whole life is about is the redemption of God. This is real history. This really happened in space and time on planet Earth. And we can orient our lives around it. Our lives can orient about our life before we had redemption and our life after we had redemption as we await perfect fellowship with God in the second coming of Jesus. In the redemption plan, God says, okay, instead of killing man outright, I, God, will suffer the death that man's supposed to die. And so God sets up, first, his kingdom in an earthly Old Testament sense, but that's only because he's gonna, God waits till the time is right for his true redemption to come in Jesus Christ. His true redemption plan, the true death... Killing a goat doesn't really wash the sins of the people away. Never has, never will. The death that sin requires ain't the death of a goat. It's the death of a human being. That's the price for sin. So the Day of Atonement, God set it up to point people in the direction of Jesus Christ. So even before he came into the room and you could see him and embrace him for who he was, you at least saw his shadow and you knew he was coming and you knew what he looked like to some degree. And that's what the Day of Atonement was always to be. Um, God made, I've just taken those and put them up there in smaller print so I can continue. God himself would suffer the man that, the death that man was to die for this death to be successful. In other words, you know, some people say, well, why did God even do that? He's God. Why didn't he just snap his fingers and say, you're okay? That would require God to change who he was. And our God never changes. Our God is perfect. By definition, if he's perfect, he can't change. Any change would either be more perfect or less perfect. Or, you know, God, in our logic sense, does not change. So God's got a justice requirement of human death for human sin. And God brings this about by becoming a human himself and taking on the sins of Cal at Calvary. The Hebrew ceremony was a symbolic foreshadowing of the reality of Christ's work. Christ is the real atonement for sin. Always has been, always will be. Now, let's look at it. Aaron 
He was the high priest for the Day of Atonement, at, at least initially. In our understanding, the real high priest was Jesus Christ. By high priest, we're talking about someone who had the authority to go into the very presence of God Almighty on behalf of humans. Aaron had that authority in the Old Testament, as did the other high priest. But the real person, the only real human being in the history of the human race who truly had authority to truly go before God on our behalf was Jesus Christ. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.14. We have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Do you see how Aaron, the old high priest for the Day of Atonement, he was just a sample of what Jesus was to be. Let's look further. Once a year, Aaron was to go in, or the high priest, to go into the holiest of holies, behind the curtain, where the ark was, where the very presence of God was, once a year. Well, Jesus Christ goes into the real presence of God. As a real sacrifice, he doesn't just go behind this curtain in this man-made representation of God with a man-made ark of the covenant where God... Um, um, tells folks they can consider it his dwelling. Jesus Christ goes into the actual heavenly dwelling presence of God to mediate on our behalf. Hebrews 6, 19 through 20. This is an anchor we have for our souls. This is something that holds us fast and steady in a storm. It, it enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, the holiest of holies, where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. So you see the Day of Atonement, we talked about Aaron would go in behind the curtain that one day a year. Jesus Christ has done that for us. Uh, before Aaron went in, Aaron had to clean himself and put on his special clothes, remember? Christ doesn't even have to do that because Christ is sinless. He is pure. He's already clean. Christ is able to proceed straight into the heavenlies. Hebrews 7.26 Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, Aaron, Jesus does not need to offer sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Jesus doesn't have to slay a goat before he goes to Calvary so that Jesus is pure and can approach God Almighty on our behalf. Jesus already is pure. He is sinless. Now, then Aaron sacrifices a goat for the people on the Day of Atonement. But we see in Christian walk, Christ himself is that sacrifice. The goat was never really useful. Paul says in Romans that the only reason those sacrifices were there was as, a, as a, 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 an appeal to God for a clear conscience. But the only real clear conscience anybody ever got is from the sacrifice of Jesus. Did you know that if the world ended at 33 AD and we never existed, if Christ's death came at the end of the world, Jesus still had to die. And Paul makes that point in Romans. Do you know why? He had to die for the sins of Abraham and Moses and all those people who lived before. 
Paul makes this point in Romans. He says, you know, Jesus had to die because God in his patience had passed over the sins of these other people. But a price still had to be paid. That blood of the goat wasn't really doing it. It was, it, it was not. So Christ himself is our sacrifice. And this is again Hebrews 7.27. You see why Hebrews gets the name Hebrews? It's sort of steeped. It could almost be Leviticus, uh, the second book of Leviticus. Okay? Um, whoops. Go back. Hebrews 7.27. Christ sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. If I were to say to you, tell me about the day you got saved, a very good answer would be, well, it was 33 A.D. And my Lord... Jesus Christ, who was pure, who was God in the flesh, took my sins upon himself. My Lord died for me. And that's the day I was saved. Now, in history, as it's worked out, it's come to me through my faith in Jesus. But the day of our salvation was the day that Jesus Christ died once for all. He didn't have to do it every year. The scapegoat took the people's sins out of the camp. Jesus Christ took our sins on the cross and away from us into hell itself. Our sins were taken from us and put on Jesus. And he didn't die in the midst of a holy war. He died isolated by himself even forsaken by God, totally out from the camp. His dying words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was the scapegoat. He was the man who bore our sins and our trespasses. The sins that we have are sins that have been put on one who has been separated and driven out from the very presence of God and his people and died alone with our sins and paid the redemptive price. Aaron took the goat's blood before the symbolic throne of God. Jesus, our Lord's blood, goes before the real throne of God. Hebrews 9, he didn't enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. Jesus goes into the very presence of God because the price has been paid. And then the curtain which separated the holy of holies, which separated God from the people, that curtain that the priest was only allowed, the high priest, to go behind once a year. You know the curtain? We saw the picture of it. Even in the temple, they rebuilt that part and had the curtain. You know what happened when Christ died. The curtain was torn. We read in Mark, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God was tearing that curtain apart. If man had torn it, it'd be torn from the bottom up towards God. But God tore that curtain. And there is no longer, with the death of Jesus Christ, anything that separates you and I from our God. In Jesus Christ, we are one with God. All of our sins, no matter how bad, have been purified. There is power in the blood of Jesus Christ 
to take away every sin you have. There is power in the blood of Jesus Christ to draw you into the very presence of God. And there is power in the blood of Jesus Christ to restore your fellowship with God Almighty. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, where Aaron the high priest could only go once a year and then after he'd done all this elaborate staging, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain. That is, his body. Net, net. Bottom line. Our fellowship with God is fully restored by the death of Christ. Atonement is made. As the writer of Hebrews concludes, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. In closing, I offer this. And, I, and, and, and let me tell you, I'd love to talk to you some more after this, but it's going to be at my house. So get over there. I'm running out the side door because I have to beat you all there or the gates shut. Um, We go back to where I started the class. I wish so much that I could get easily outside of the focus of my life to realize in history there were real people like you and me, that God stepped down in history, actually did this on planet Earth, and said, I want you Jews to honor a day of atonement every year. Here's an elaborate sacrificial system. Do it exactly like I say. Build the tabernacle exactly like I say because this is a picture of what I'm going to be doing for you 1,500 years later. Folks, if you don't believe in the truth of Jesus Christ and Christianity... How on earth could something be written 1,500 years earlier like this and find its fit so perfectly in the work of Jesus Christ? It's very compelling to me that we have a God who for ages has sought to restore our fellowship. And I challenge each one of us to look at Him through the blood of Jesus in faith not trying to live it perfectly in the sense of trying to merit his favor like Nadab and Abihu, but coming before him in awe of his wonderful love and returning it in fellowship. Pray with me. Lord, we come on our knees before you and confess that we are not worthy of your love. We are not worthy of your attention. We all in this place sin and go astray on a daily basis. Sometimes we struggle with it. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes our attitudes are contrite. Sometimes they're haughty. Sometimes we look to you with tears in our hearts. And sometimes, Lord, we confess we don't even pay you attention. And we ignore who you are. Lord, this morning we embrace your offer your loving offer of fellowship. And I confess to you, Lord, that I in totally put my trust in Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for my sins. May I never, ever try to please you and earn your love. May I always try to please you 
out of a returning love. Touch our hearts, Lord. Draw us close to you. In Jesus we pray, amen.